0: We've got a full studio. Well, why don't you start then, David? Well, I want to talk about authors and writing, and is it possible to make a living as a writer? Now, my guest today is well positioned to address that subject given the breadth and scope of his experience. He's the award winning author Frank Morehouse whose essay on this very subject can be found in the latest edition of *Meangin*. So, Frank, welcome to 3CR. Thank you, David. Now, your essay begins biographically. When I was about 15 in school at Wollongong... Wollong, I can't even get the word out. Wollongong, Wollongong Tech, Tech. I began to think I would like to be a writer. What is astonishing about this is uh, the youth...
1: The isolation, the lack of role models,
0: how do you account for a 15-year-old wanting to be a writer? Yeah,
1: as I was writing it, I hadn't, hadn't gone back in my uh, my life and my mind to that question, that that mystery of why why uh, a kid in, in, a, in a technical high school, all the other students were headed for the coal mines or for the steelworks. Uh, I'd been put there to get a technical education and... Uh, it was um, so, but I did have an English teacher, and one always. I mean, looking back, I, I have to honour English teachers in my education, right back and to primary school, and uh, and uh, I had an English teacher at, at Wollongong Tech, who who spotted the fact that I was interested in reading and then interested in writing. But within yourself, you must have known. Uh, well, I, I think it grew out of uh, the first reading experience that that both enchanted me and transformed my mind was Alice in Wonderland. I was very sick in bed for a number of um, a month, month or more and uh, and I got that book was given to me, and uh, I thought this is magic and and uh, and then I thought I'd, I'd love to make this magic. But then at, at high school, I became interested in the short story and uh, independently of the English course. But then I was encouraged, and I read O. Henry. Uh, I was probably given hints to what to who to read Maupassant um, uh, and uh, Chekhov, even, and they're in the in the tech in the technical school library, or I got them out of the public library. And and but I wanted to be a magician. I wanted to make the magic, but. Ultimately, as in the essay, I, I I say that gradually, I after high school, I became a cadet journalist, and by then I was stuck and some of my mates, or especially one mate, we we had identified what was the what what being a writer meant, and well, you, yes, mm.
0: th- buying a smoking jacket to be a writer.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, that was my first. <laughs> Affectation. There's a lot of affectation among male writers. Um, I bought a corduroy, smoke, a three three-quarter-length smoking jacket. What would have been called? I'd never. No one in my family or none of my friends wore anything like it, and it was belted. But I thought of it as a writer. I was 19, I think, a writer's jacket.
0: It would have improved the style immeasurably, I'm <laughs> sure.
1: <laughs> and then, I, and then when I was 22, I I, I burned it. Uh, because it was, I thought, my God, what a phony. I, I, I'd published some short stories. I'd published from age, age 18 in Southerly and Mianjin, and and so I was already getting some something of a sense of, of writing and success, but I didn't think it justified the jacket. I thought you had to have a novel before you had the jacket. I've never gone back.
0: Your essay moves from that biographical account to a discussion about the relationship with society that a writer has. Literary authorship is characterised by a special orientation to our relationship with society. And it's a multifaceted relationship, economic as well as uh, nurturing um, the sort of uh, community. So, I mean, the economic factor
1: takes up a large part of the essay.
0: What does society owe the
1: author? Ah, it's, yes. It's. A real, I, I was thinking as you uh, putting the question that it's not only an orientation towards society; it's an orientation towards the self and our and and uh, it's uh, it's partly in only partly an observer role, but it's a it's a exploratory attitude as well. It's an it's an act of inquiry. Uh, and uh, driven by inquiry and the society of knowing the society uh, either through using the imagination and, but as I said I came out of the tradition that said you should go out and get experience uh, we like my friend John Cantwell and I like biographical notes that said worked on a merchant ship uh, 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 dug coal, a sheared sheep Uh, And so on. And we thought that was the right way to go. But we hadn't read Proust, who wrote all his books in a cork-lined room Mm -hmm. and uh, had very – but all experience can be explored at great depth. It doesn't matter. Uh, And then you bring that back to the society, yes. So what does that give to society? It gives, at least for, since the Renaissance, the idea of the independent or the, the writer or the artist, the actor, the painter, uh, being, of course, for a while controlled by the church and then by the state, uh, broke away. there was the breakaway from to, towards the idea that the arts was an independent uh, approach uh, inquiry uh, um, into society. As science was, science emerged at the same time, law... Uh, emerged as a, a type of exploration and in independence again, the, it gave the citizen a citizen get it, could get it once mm. a citizen could get a lawyer. Mm. <laughs> There's no stopping us. Uh, so it was an independent. Uh, relationship, and, uh, and it was a contribution. The contribution was, uh, uh, we have observed you, this is what we observe. But there's a
0: sense of friction here, because in some ways society should be funding authors, but the author should be independent of society. Oh,
1: uh, we- yes, yeah, yeah. And this, this tension goes on. When, when, when Gough Whitlam radically funded the arts... We would. We thought it was marvelous, but then we all started to worry about the government controlling the arts, and someone, someone. I remember one argument which ended up we were saying, but we won't be able to criticize the Labor government uh, uh, or Whitlam, and and I said, no, our problem will. We would. We won't be. We won't feel we can. We are free to to praise them, <laughs> uh, because. Uh, Praise them would have been sucking up to them, yes,
0: yeah. Um, but yes, that that friction then, I mean, with the author being independent, um, are they
1: isolated from society, or how do you see the author's role? It's again, this is another tension among writers. Uh, some writers argue that, and that you have to be you have to in, involve yourself uh, in in say government or or, or in uh, political life or in community life uh, and so on or and of course uh, uh, family life uh, although that that 's been an argument uh, about the problem of the uh, the pram in the, in the, one one writer grimly said in 1930 or something that the great enemy of the writer was the pram in the in the in In the the corridor in the in the hallway Uh, but we've gone past that many good books have been written with the pram in the hallway
0: oh we've had numerous authors (laughs) through here that have written late at night and and, yeah yeah it can be done
1: but in my in my essay i interview a number of Prize winners of the Vogel Prize, which was a prize for young writers. And I'll go back 30 years to Tim Winton, Mm. uh, who had a pram in, in the hallway, and... Uh, but the uh, the, uh, the women writers say it is really... Uh, qu- it's, it's very difficult to combine that. But it's a perennial... That for a number of years, it takes years.
0: Yeah, it's a perennial problem then for all artists in many ways to support themselves, to maintain a life as well as maintain themselves as an artist. Um, so, yeah. I mean, you talk about the funding. Does society owe these authors are living um, or should they continue to struggle
1: well i i actually have no no evidence whatsoever that the stru- that poverty assists uh creativity uh, <laughs> there are a number of number of our good writers i mean patrick white would be one but uh, then in wider edith Wharton, and but others were, had independent incomes and it didn't make them they didn't Write one book and and then say that's enough. They went on writing all their life. They had no struggle with their with economics, uh, uh, so I uh, they didn't suffer poverty. <laughs> but uh, but what what do we why what's the argument for the society? Well, it's got to be arm's length. with there's been that's why we have an Australia Council that's independent of the government. Although the current government tried to move back control to the cabinet control of arts funding to the cabinet arts funding is by the way in a great mess a great mess and it needs urgent attention
0: you use the image uh, a gardening image of nurturing a society uh and and that is the value of the arts
1: well yeah it goes it you many many books uh many shakespeare plays aren't aren't Seen by many people by all people in, in the society, but they virtually everyone in the society quotes Shakespeare. every Rotarian quotes Shakespeare uh, uh, It seeps through into our, into our vernacular the By the way, there was a wonderful uh, uh, outside um, this building there's a, 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 a pharmacy a pharmaceutical. Uh, factory and it has a quote from uh, Virginia Woolf. Well, this is Fitzroy after <laughs> a quote from Virginia Woolf running right along the outside wall, and n- their name's not there, just a quote from Virginia Woolf. And the uh, the books influence teachers who influence children. The books, books influence all sorts of people mm. and seep through the society. And sometimes the society takes a while to get to the book. There's sometimes I, I read a book uh, of George Eliot's uh, uh, last year, and um, that took uh, 150 years to reach my bedside table.
0: But you also talk about people that you meet at um, literary uh, conventions who haven't heard of you or haven't read. Your yeah word. I've had
1: a lot of attention a lot of publicity I've had a lot of I've had a lot of of uh, recognition and so I've been writing 50 years and I at the last Sydney Writers Festival that's a year ago uh, a woman came up with had bought three of the books after at the festival after you do a talk the book they go to the bookshop at the festival and buy if they're interested they buy the books and they bring we have a great ritual where they bring the book to be signed Send. And it's also a little chat mm. with an author, and they buy <laughs> buy a few minutes. It's a bit. Sometimes it's quite conve- conve- confessional. But they're discovering. And she said, "Yes, she said, she said, I, I, oh, I'm a great reader, and I hadn't come across you." Yeah, but
0: I mean, this is what we find here. There are so many authors that come across uh-huh. through our studio door, and. The more you read, the more you realise that there's a lot out there
1: to be read and a lot to be discovered. More books than ever are out there and there are also 500 years of books in the queue <laughs> and there are books, and Australian writers uh, on the bookshelves of a shop are, uh, French writers, English writers, American Right, us. We've always been in competition with the world. Yeah, I
0: haven't. I haven't read your books yet, but there's a lot I've got to catch up on before <laughs> yeah, I get oh, there. and
1: and uh, yes, but winning. Uh, gradually, you win. A, what I call a, a bona fide. Or, or a readership yeah. or who
0: will pass your name on, who say you must read
1: this. Yes, yeah. and, and yes, the greatest patrons of the arts are mm. enthusiastic readers, mm. and they go. Uh,
0: the final area I want to tackle. You mention therapy in your essay. Um, is that the inevitable fate of all <laughs> authors? Because you're working a lot in isolation. You're observing how much of you, how much of your life is isolated from society. How much. Uh, authors in need of therapy.
1: Perhaps. Uh, 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 well, we're getting into personal country here, but uh, I was at a again a, a writers' festival. I think it was in Melbourne, here in Melbourne, and and there was an American and a British writer and myself, and um, the the the, chair, the person chairing the pa- panel said, uh, of course, therapy can. You know, interfere with the creative process, can't it? And and we looked at each other, and and she said, "Well, have any of you had therapy?" And the three of us said, "Yes, we had." (laughs) But it's also
0: it doesn't necessarily interfere. It's a it's an exploration of yourself in
1: some ways to add to
0: what you write about.
1: Yeah, this first time I entered into therapy uh, when I was young. um, I've been back a couple of times. Quite, rather recently, but uh, the psychiatrist I said, "I talked about the whether this would would interfere with damage, destroy the creative, and he said, Your talents will remain exactly the same." same. Yeah. But your relationship to your talents might change a bit. Right. And, mm.
0: Well, Frank, we're going to have to finish the interview there. It's been a fascinating discussion. Frank Morehouse, his essay is writing still a way of life and it can be found in the latest edition of the Mianjin Quarterly.
2: May I just ask the question? You you won
1: a Vogel Prize, didn't you? Oh, no, I didn't. I didn't, It's one no. of the
2: very few things it's, you haven't won. <laughs>
1: uh, well, it's for under 30 writers, under 35. It was started... Twenty or thirty years. I think I was over thirty-five when it started, oh, <laughs> right. but I have won all uh, oh, pretty and much the in major your prizes. Yeah. You didn't
2: sort of say to them, "They must have a smoking jacket." Did you? <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> I asked the the recent winners what 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 they thought being a writer meant, and well, you can read about what they said in the in the, the young writers, the middle. I went back fifteen years to another three, back to Tim Winton, and another three and what they thought being a writer meant. And it's quite. It's, I found it fascinating to read the different... There are many ways of being a writer, and being full-time is not the only way. Mm.
2: And, uh, David, how can people get the quarterly magazine?
1: Well, uh, that's a good question.
0: Uh, best way is to subscribe. Best news agent. But uh, most news agents it. will have a copy. Um, it's a Melbourne University publishing uh, release,
1: so that's another avenue. Um, but, yeah, most good news agencies. 75 years old. Mm. I published in it when I was a teenager, yeah. when I was mm. 19. So it's it's Just.
0: contributed a lot to the arts and letters in Australia.
2: Did you give them a photo of you in your smoking jacket when you were 19?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I have their photograph of me on the cover as I'm drowning.
2: Oh, <laughs> okay. Or
1: coming to the surface, one or the other.
2: All right. Well, thank you very much. Thank Frank you.
1: Morehouse and David.
2: Look, um... Yesterday I was chatting with a group of friends about how many houses you've lived in. Well, I'm only into four. Four. What about you, Frank? Forty. Forty, David? For
1: more than three months. Anywhere for more than three months. Um, Well, my father
0: was a a minister, so we moved on average about every four years when I was a child.
2: My author today, and welcome Sally Van Gendt, has lived in many houses but also many countries. So welcome to the 3CR. Your Thank again. you. again. Your book The Navy Blue Suitcase is not a traveller's tale. How would you describe it?
3: Um, it's a very personal and intimate memoir and um, it's written in short story form um, because I found that looking back over my life it was the the tiny instances, a, a few brief moments that remained with me forever. Mm. And those are those um, moments that I've recorded.
2: So the writing is in snippets really, yes, isn't it? Yes,
3: because that's, I think, what memory is.
2: But the beauty of this book too is the artwork. So you've done that? Yes. It's black and white sketches? Yes. And so many of them were, were done or illustrated periods of your time long long ago. Did you draw them then or redrew them now?
3: Some of them I did then and some of them more recently. The writing and the pictures just seem to come together in my head.
2: Your book's broken up into chapters but where it's divided also by the drawing of a rug and pieces of the rug come to fruition through the book. Did you ever make that rug? Um, No,
3: but I'm a a collector of Persian carpets. I've always had a fascination for them. I've been in around and seen how they were made, and um, that was my...
2: Well, the first corner of the rug is called The Limes, and this is the chapter of your childhood in Yorkshire. Um, You did something that many children do. You went snooping into your mother's private domain. So what did you find? Um, I
3: waited till she'd gone out and... um, went upstairs and looked in her suitcase um, because there were some strange goings-on with my father which I didn't understand and I thought there might be a little bit of information inside that suitcase. So I had a look inside one day and found a photograph, a wedding photograph, and suddenly realized that it was an old, old photograph, but it was the, the bride was my mother. But she wasn't holding my father's arm. It was some other man I had never heard of or didn't know nothing about. And um, I was shocked. And I I desperately wanted to ask her about it. But how
2: could I? I'd been snooping in her suitcase. So we're. we're The mystery of the father goes through the book But now it's your own building a family Your son's, Angus And this is a quote from the book A rapid birth is followed by stitches Seventeen of them Sewn without anaesthetic By a doctor who shouts at me When I cry out in pain Not a pleasant one And then another child, Nathaniel The hurt may have even been worse with him A quote from the book I've had a baby But I'm coming home alone Oh, what was wrong with Nathaniel? Um, He
3: was the most beautiful child. He looked perfect when he was born. He was a little early. But um, as it happened, his esophagus um, joined to his lung instead of his stomach. So had he been fed, he would have drowned. And um, eventually he stayed in hospital for the first year of his life. And... um, had 27 operations came home with a tracheostomy in his throat which he had for three years which is a pretty scary thing to have at home because it only needs to block once and it's too late.
2: So you travelled everywhere with the baby
3: as he grew up older and a foot pump (laughs) and a foot pump on the aeroplane everywhere and um, I had a very difficult decision to make because I had him home in the north of England in February was bitterly cold and he had one desperate chest infection after another and i thought he would die my husband was in arabia and um, i had to make a decision whether to go out to this third world country with this child or not and um, the doctors told me not to go but i could see he wasn't getting any better Mm. so finally we got on the plane
2: now um you (laughs) your husband's work took him into quite some exotic places why (laughs) did you decide to go in the first place
3: well, we moved around the UK when we were first married <coughs> a few times and um, eventually we reached a situation where the only work, he was a civil engineer, the only work available was in big cities like Manchester or Birmingham to which we didn't wish to go and um, we were getting fairly broke at the time and um, he saw this advert for a job in Gutter, which we had never heard of. So we nipped down to the library, because this was, of course, before the days of the internet, and um, took out an atlas and found this name on a little pink spot on the edge of the Arabian Gulf. And we asked all our friends, nobody had ever heard of it. So, um, he went for the interview and he got the job and the conditions sound good. And, um, as I said, we were rather broke at the time. So, we got on the plane and ended up in a little mud brick house on the edge of the desert.
2: Well... Uh, Qatar was not the only weird place you worked in. There was Kuwait and Abu Dhabi and sort of and, Mauritius. And Mauritius. So there are, a lot of the episodes of your life are from exotic times and exotic places. Like, for example, who came to visit you at Christmas time with gifts?
3: Oh, a shake. <laughs> As you'd expect. Yes. And
2: what kind of gifts did he give you?
3: Oh, we, always gold. Always
2: gold. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Necklaces, bracelets, things and like course, that.
2: of course, you know, sort of the culture is you have to accept the gifts or it's offend. It's
3: extremely offensive to refuse a gift.
2: And then another time, you you with the boys and your husband, you went down to a private beach knowing that you could... Well, what could you do at the private beach? Well... This is Kuwait,
3: I believe you're speaking about. And um, there was a lot of itinerant workers there, and there was no way a woman could strip off and go into the sea without attracting a lot of unwanted attention. And so we drove for a couple of hours to an isolated beach where I could put on a bikini and swim.
2: And another family came down.
3: Yes, a Kuwaiti (laughs) family with the women in the buyers and uh, completely covered. And. um, I, it was too late for me to cover myself and I felt very uncomfortable. I thought they'd think I was an absolute harlot, you know, yeah. showing all this skin. And they went into the water and uh, fully dressed. fully clothed, their, their clothing, you know, they couldn't possibly swim because it was all. And they were fully masked, which, uh, you know, is a beak like mask. Yeah. And um, so I thought, oh, well, blow it, you know, I, I'll just go back to sleep. So I lay down again. And shut my eyes and then after a moment I heard this sound and one of these masked women was standing over me and I jumped up very uncomfortable and she held out her hand, this henard hand, and on it was this beautiful orange flower. And I, it took me a moment to realise it was this marvelously cut orange that she was holding out to me, and she just gave me this orange, and I thanked her. Oh, shukran, shukran, and she just—I could see a smile in her eyes, and she just turned, and as she turned, I heard a laughter. Oh
2: isn't that a lovely story yes thank you and told beautifully just as nicely it was written um other funny things bedouin picnics and being buzzed by a harrier jet and finally getting your luggage from england which uh contained an overripe cheese (laughs) (laughs) and look if we've got time cockroach removal. Tell us about that one, because this one is just wonderful. Well, the
3: first house we moved into, the little mud brick house. I never saw a cockroach at all there for a whole year. And then we moved into a more modern place, and um, it was one of those times where if you got up in the night and turned the light on in the kitchen, it was bedlam. Everything just ran all over the, all over the, the cupboards and everywhere. It was It was horrific they were everywhere. If you pulled your dress on in a moment, you'd probably feel little furry feet tickling your midriff. It was shocking. One day, I um, pulled on a a tennis, short tennis skirt and was uh, driving to play badminton somewhere. And um I got into the traffic on the roundabout and there's this massive black cockroach crawling up my leg to the edge of my skirt. And I nearly crashed into this old bed with sheep in the back. It was absolutely terrifying. So finally, we managed to get the men from the sanitation department to come and deal with it.
2: And were they wearing overalls?
3: Oh, no, no. They were immaculately dressed in white shirts and black trousers and thongs. Thongs? Thongs. So they went round the back of the house, dropped this bomb into the grate, and then suddenly this massive river of cockroaches emerged from the grate, and then they started leaping on them, (laughs) smashing them with their thongs. (laughs) (laughs) and having the most marvellous time. It was like some kind of wild party. We didn't have any more cockroaches after that, but I was still having nightmares about them years later.
2: Well, as the book goes on, we find out that there's a new man in your life, Nick, and the most exciting adventure involving a lot of trust by you in the middle of the night In Singapore Harbour. And I must say, when Frank Morehouse was looking through the book, he saw your photo, your drawing there of all the ships in the harbour. But I'm sure he's not expecting this story.
3: Well, my husband was a marine engineer at the time, and um, I wasn't, uh, we were engaged. I was living in Singapore. And um, I got a message to be, he was away at sea and he would, I wasn't expecting to see him for five months and I had a message, just a very brief message to say, be at the small boat harbour at midnight and so I went down there and there were two Chinese sitting in a boat, called out my name and took me out into the outer reaches of Singapore (laughs) Harbour where his his oil tanker was awaiting
2: me. Oh yes, so there we have the answer of Singapore Harbour. Uh,
0: Very quick question, how do you see your life as a writer? Going back to Frank's experiences.
3: Well, I'm quite different from Frank in that I never wrote a word until I was in my late 60s. Had this apple orchard, which failed, and then realised that I just had to write about it. And when I had, I discovered that I needed to write, and I have been writing ever since.
2: Look, it's something that connected both stories. This is another quote from uh, Sully Van Gend: Fleeting moments I thought insignificant are fixed forever in my mind and I found that of all my memories, the sweetest are the saddest to recall. Very nice way to finish. Okay, well, thank you very much, Frank Morehouse, Sully Van Gend, and David. Thank well, you. Thank you, Jane. And thank you. listening in next week to Published or Not.